the temperature was falling drastically, nearing 20 degrees below zero. Alan sat shivering in his pickup truck. He had warm clothes and an emergency blanket, but sadly, no tire chains, as he hadn't anticipated getting stuck in a snowdrift. On this January night, 1982, Alan realized that the Colorado mountains, although beautiful, could be downright deadly, and Alan didn't want to die. How could he save himself? No one even knew he was stranded out there. Suddenly, Alan heard an airplane flying overhead. He decided to use the only thing he could think of. His headlights and Morse code. S-O-S. But would his message be received by anyone? The whole attempt felt like a lost cause, but it was a Hail Mary that Alan was willing to take as the gas in his truck and his time on Earth were running short. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast about Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Core, and today's episode is number 20. Oh, now, no need to golf clap for me. The real celebration will be when I hit episode 25, which I'm hoping to do before the end of the year. So four more to go after this. Okay, then. Today's story does not take place in Michigan, but of course, it has a Michigan connection. This story also has twists you aren't going to expect. And for all you true crime lovers, you might just, um, enjoy this. All I know is that when I read about this story on the Twitter page, Morbid Knowledge, my mouth fell open, and then my jaw dropped, and then my eyes widened, and then I yelled, no way, several times. I hoped so hard that there would be a Michigan connection, and then I punched the air several times in celebration when I saw it. Now, I get to share this crazy, horrible yet fascinating story with you. This is one of those stories that isn't at all what it seems at any point, and it's long. Are you ready, dear listeners? Let's go. Now, please, please, please don't be confused about today's subject. It is Alan Lee Phillips. We will circle back to him, stuck in his pickup truck, signaling SOS, But because this is a podcast about family trees, we are going to start with Alan's father, Robert Lee Phillips Jr., who we will call Babo for differentiation and because it's big fun for me. Babo was born in 1925 and grew up an only child, living with Ma, Pa, and Grandma Phillips on Cherry Street in a little northern town of Michigan called Cadillac. For those of you not from Michigan, pull out your hand and slap yourself because Michigan is freaking awesome. Just kidding. Don't do that. I'm sure your state is just as rad as Michigan. You did hear me correctly, right? I said rad, not bad. But keep your hand out, uh, your right hand, and palm up. Okay. Cadillac is like the middle knuckle of your ring finger. 
and Cadillac, in my correct opinion, is considered up north. In 2020, it had a population of about 10,000. And in case you are using your Subway restaurant litmus test, there are three Subway sandwich restaurants in Cadillac. Cadillac is such a cute little town, but admittedly, I've only been to one part of it. US 55 that runs between Lake Mitchell and Lake Cadillac. There is a little strip of land where you have water on both sides of you for a hot second, and it's lovely. There's also a really yummy pasty place on US 55 called Mr. Flossie's. It's so good. What's a pasty, you ask? Oh, my Michiganness is showing, and I have to get back to the story. Just Google it. But also, I just remembered I have two beef pasties in the freezer from Mr. Flossie's. So hold up. I'll be right back because I need to get them out to defrost. All right, I'm back. Babo graduated from high school, enlisted in the Air Force, and somehow made it all the way down to where the stars at night are big and bright, and the prairie sky is wide and high, and the sage in bloom is like perfume, and the coyotes wail along the trail, and the rabbits rush around the brush. You know, the Lone Star State, Texas. Babo ended up at the San Angelo Army Airfield Base, and to his best luck, 18-year-old Willa May Rudder was employed there as well. Willa May. I would probably say it like, Willa May, with a little bit of twang in there. Anyhow, Babo and Willa May evidently hit it off, or so it seemed. They had a strong start with one of those big fat articles in the newspaper about their wedding day. The paper told of how the bride, Willa May, had worn a spring suit of gold wool. Okay, stop. Let's chat. I was really confused about this spring suit made of wool, so I googled it and found the answer to my question. It came from permies.com. Quote, wasn't it bloody hot to wear wool clothing? (laughs) The answer was a simple no. Wool clothing back then was either ultra-fine or super-fine merino wool. It breathes and is cool in summer and warm in winter. End quote. So that answers that, and that is what Willa May wore on a January day in 1946. I said sex. I I meant six. 1946 in Texas, which can be chilly. She also wore a blue felt hat with matching blue gloves and carried a white Bible under her arm as the nuptials were exchanged in a double ring ceremony. We don't know what the groom was wearing, although we assume clothing. No one seemed to care. Babo and Willa May made their home in Midland, Texas, for a few seconds, and the newspaper article stated that Babo would be continuing his education at the local college. Babo and Willa May's first son, Bruce, was born October 1946, but he was not born in Texas. No, sir. He was born way north, east of Texas, like way northeast in his father's hometown of Cadillac, Michigan. Yes, that's right. Babo and Willa May had moved to Cadillac within a year of their marriage, most definitely while Willa May was pregnant. It was here that Bruce was born. There could be many reasons why the couple went back to Cadillac, Michigan, 
but there was something kind of terrible happening back home for Babo. His parents got divorced after 22 years of marriage. One month after the divorce was final, Robert Sr. got remarried. Her name was Cora Orvis. She was 24 while Robert Sr. was... Uh, 44. Cora moved into that Cherry Street house with her new husband and mother-in-law, Grandma Lena, as if there hadn't been a previous wife and son that had lived there. <laughs> Love, I guess. Robert Sr. and Cora did have a son together in 1949. By the way, this baby was born an uncle with his nephew a few years older than he was. All of that family drama was taking place while Babo and Willa May were starting their lives together. Babo and Willa May were living near Babo's father, Robert Sr., and his new wife, Cora, and don't forget, Grandma Lena Phillips in Cadillac on Cherry Street. And when I say that Willa May and Babo lived near Babo's father, I mean right next door. When Bruce was four years old, the family made another move to, not to Texas. Nope, poor Willa May had to suffer through some more Midwestern weather. In 1950, the Phillips family was living in an apartment in Green Bay, like Wisconsin. Babo was now a traveling supervisor for a retail grocery company. But the Phillips did not stay in Wisconsin for long either. On February 6, 1951, the family welcomed their second and final child to the family, Alan Lee Phillips. He was born in Cadillac, Michigan. Do you think Babo made it a requirement for the children to be born in his hometown? I don't know, but I wonder. For the next few years, between 1951 and 1953, the family moved from Michigan back to Wisconsin and then to Indiana, as Babo was a salesman and a district manager for the Grand Union Tea Company. But then what? Well, there also seems to have been a move to where the stars at night are big and bright, and the prairie sky is wide and high, and the sage and... Okay, y'all, Texas. Willa May finally got to go home-ish. But I don't know that the family went there together as one unit, because it seems that the solid union between Robert Phillips Jr., Babo, and Willa May only lasted about 10 years. A divorce took place at some point because Babo Phillips got married in June 1957 to a woman named Josie Loretta Owens, who was just 18 years old. Babo was 31. This sounds familiar to you, right? Babo's dad, Robert Sr., had done about the same thing. Divorce and marry a much younger woman. So... Babo's new wife, Josie, at the age of 18, became a stepmother to an 11-year-old boy and a 6-year-old boy. What a fun thing to do after just graduating high school. Babo's ex-wife, Willa May, also remarried, but she waited a bit longer. When Bruce was about 20 and Alan was about 15, Willa May married a man named Henry Kirk Booth in 1966. They got married in Fisher, Texas. She was 39, and Henry was 45. And spoiler alert, they remained married to each other for the rest of their lives, which was about 17 years with the death of Henry in 1983. 
The same cannot be said for Babo. I know this is going to shock you, but Babo and his teen bride, Josie Loretta, dissolved their marriage. I don't know when. Babo still believed in the sanctity of marriage, though, and gave it a third try with a woman named Marion sometime before 1964. And surprisingly, I think they were married for the rest of their days. Oh, and Marion was Babo's age. So you remember the actual subject of this whole episode, right? It is Alan Lee Phillips. However, we aren't going to talk about him just yet. First, I'm going to ever so briefly discuss Bruce, the older brother. He served in the military, and then he somehow, someway, married a Lansing, Michigan lady, Diana. She had been born in Gladwin, Michigan, lived in Clare, but apparently went to Everett High School in Lansing, Michigan. Bruce and his wife, Diana, lived in Clare, St. John's, Lansing, and jumping ahead a lot, they retired to Tucson, Arizona, and lived three miles from Bruce's dad, Babo, who had also retired to Tucson. As far as I know, Bruce is still alive, which always makes me nervous. You know, when I do a story on people who could, you know, contact me. Hi, Bruce. I think you were the normal one. Finally, we have arrived to the subject of this crazy tale. You are welcome, though, for that thorough family history. So where was little Alan Lee Phillips, youngest boy of Babo and Willa May? We know he was living in or near Snyder with, I think, his mother and brother at the age of 11. But the next time we find him, he is graduating from high school at the age of 19. Oh, wait, I misspoke. Not high school, y'all. He graduated from the Oklahoma Military Academy. Ooh, shala. What kind of vibe does that give you? Let's think of some reasons humans go to military academies. I know there are very great reasons, but you know, I just get the feeling he was a bad egg making bad life choices. This is total speculation. After military school, Alan attended Ottawa College in Kansas, but he didn't finish his degree. Instead, he became a mechanic at a mine and eventually operated a repair business. Things seemed like they were looking up for the young Alan. And they were because hot dog. He got married to a woman named Dolly from Kansas. Hello, Dolly. All of this happened so fast all in 1970 and 1971 at the age of 20. He lived in Kansas for a few years, and then in 1973, at the age of 22, he moved to Fair Play, Colorado. Now, I think it's important to give you the setting of the story, hence the name of the podcast, Where They Stood, so you'll probably want to just get out your United States Road Atlas If you're my stepmom, everyone else just bring it up on your phone. Most of this story takes place in and around Breckenridge, Colorado. Breckenridge is like an hour west and then 30 minutes south of Denver, Colorado. The place where Alan Phillips and his wife Dolly moved to, Fairplay, is just south of Breckenridge. Now, I want you to picture Breckenridge in your head. Draw a line south, and this would be considered Colorado Highway 9. As you leave Breckenridge and go south, you will go by Hoosier Pass. 
That would be on your right or just east of the highway and will be important to the story. Then continuing south, you'll go through Alma, Colorado, also important to the story, and then you will arrive in Fairplay. Just for your own information, Fairplay, and you're hearing me correctly, right? I'm saying fair play. It's actually considered to be the setting for everyone's favorite or hated cartoon from the late 90s, South Park. Yeah, according to the Real South Park Colorado website, there are many potential cities South Park could be, but Fairplay was actually named Fairplay, and then it was renamed South Park City, like in the 1800s, and actually a part of Fairplay still has South Park City. But then in 1874, the name was changed back to Fairplay. Let's jump back for a moment between this whole Breckenridge Alma thing. Us Michigangsters know that we have our own Breckenridge and Alma that are right next to each other. They're like, I think, maybe 15 minutes apart. Alma being bigger than Breckenridge. And I think Breckenridge would be straight east of Alma. And actually... My kin are from Breckenridge. My grandparents are buried there. My mom was born in Alma. My husband graduated from Alma College. Okay, we need to get back to the story. So Alan Phillips and his wife, Dolly, they got divorced. It was August of 1973. Alan made several more moves around Fairplay and Breckenridge as he was working as a mechanic and in the mines. But let's jump forward to February 21st, 1976. This was the day before one of the most wonderful events took place for all of y'all. My birth. And really, I was almost born on February 21st, but barely made it into 222. And I'm so thankful because I love even numbers. Back to Alan. He got married again to a woman named Cheryl, wife number two. They were married at Riverside Baptist Church in Jefferson County, Colorado, but then moved to Clear Creek County, where they had a child in January 1979. Returning to locations. Envision Breckenridge, Colorado. If you head northeast, you'll hit Georgetown in Clear Creek County. This appears to be where Alan Phillips spends the rest of his life, in this area, between Breckenridge and Clear Creek County. Everyone was happy, so it seemed. And now, it was 1982. January, to be exact. Actually, Wednesday, January 6th, 1982. To be exactly exact. Alan, 30 years old now, was driving his Datsun truck to his home in Georgetown, Colorado, after 10 p.m. Can we pause for a moment and discuss Datsun trucks? I didn't realize there was such a thing. My father drove a red Datsun hatchback with a black stripe around it for about 100 years. My dad was never one of those people who had to get a new car every few years. He literally drove a car until it died. But a Datsun truck? I googled. It looks like a compact pickup truck. Was it kind of like an S10? Clearly, you can see I'm out of my element here. But back to the story. Alan was driving home, but he made a decision to cross 11,665-foot-high Guanella Pass 
And I don't know if I'm saying it right, and I'm not going to look it up. Now, when I say Guanella Pass, I'm referring to a road of sorts that is not really a main road and is a huge no-no in the winter months. Something that we here in Michigan have are rolling hills up north, but in Colorado, people are dealing with mountains. Roads are curvy and zigzaggy, and often there is not a straight shot from anywhere because of mountain ranges. Passes, like Guanella Pass, allow one to get from point A to point B instead of taking the long way around. Well, near the summit, which is the highest point of a hill or a mountain, Alan's Datsun truck tires became stuck in the snow. Quick question. If you live in Colorado in the winter months and you're a mechanic, aren't you going to put some snow chains on your damn vehicle? Hindsight, I guess. So there he was, stuck. And he wasn't just stuck. He was stuck. With his back tires sunken down, spinning in the snow, and the front end of his truck pointed slightly up. He made an attempt to dig the Datsun out, but yeah, no. It was getting pretty chilly in the negative 20 temps. He decided to try to walk to a nearby ski area, got about 200 yards, and thought, yeah, no. His only hope of survival was to stay inside that Datsun pickup truck and wait to be rescued. But what was going to happen to Alan when he ran out of gas? How the hell was he going to get out of this one? Alan was feeling desperate and isolated up there on the mountain. He was quoted as saying, You find out how lonely it is really quick. But then, Alan heard an airplane passing overhead and took his chances on an old code. Morse code. Using his headlights, Alan flashed out the SOS signal. Three short bursts. Three long bursts, three short bursts of light. But would anyone on board the airplane really see his distress call? It was a long shot. Jefferson County, Colorado Sheriff Harold E. Bray was on board a United Airlines jetliner flight to San Francisco. He was gazing out of his window when small bursts of light caught his eye. He turned his attention to the light and immediately knew what he was seeing. S.O.S. Someone was in trouble. Someone needed help. Okay, pause. When I was reading the newspaper articles about Sheriff Bray seeing the signal out of the airplane window, all I could think of was that classic Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. You know it, right? There's, there's something on the wing. This was remade into the 1983 Twilight Zone movie that, of course, my father let me watch. You know, I was seven years old and got to see John Lithgow go straight bonkers. But I had also seen the original with William Shatner because my dad loved Twilight Zone. Anyhow, I can just picture Sheriff Bray. There's, there's something flashing down there. It's flashing SOS. But Sheriff Bray did not break the window. He alerted the pilot, and nobody thought he was crazy. They believed him, and they radioed an air traffic control center nearby for additional help. Two nearby planes flew closer to where the signal was coming from and radioed for help as well. They also flashed their lights, 
to Alan, still stuck in his truck, to let him know help was on the way. The report of a stranded motorist was sent to the Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office, and two vehicles were sent to rescue Alan Phillips. By golly, Alan's plan had worked. The first person on the scene was Dave Montoya, a Clear Creek County fire chief at the time, and a mine worker. In the 48 Hours episode about Alan Phillips, Dave Montoya recalled thinking that the stranded person must have been a tourist who didn't know he or she shouldn't be anywhere near Guanella Pass. Montoya, fabulous name, right, was shocked when he saw who was in the Datsun truck. Al, he recalled yelling. There he was, face to face with his co-worker, Alan Phillips, someone who should have absolutely known not to go through the snowy pass. Montoya said, quote, He, Al, was in his little pickup, and he saw me and said, Oh, God, I'm saved. End quote. But what was Alan doing there? Alan explained to Montoya that he had gotten drunk at a friend's home in Bailey, Colorado, and decided to drive home. Montoya remembers saying, quote, You came up over the pass? And he, Alan, said, Well, seemed like a good idea at the time. I thought, how in the heck did this guy get so lucky for all of the stuff to fall into place? End quote. But there was something else Montoya thought was strange. Alan was bleeding. There were some scratches on his face. Alan brushed away any concern. He'd gotten scratches when he fell into some brush. His head was just fine. But Alan felt, quote, a bit embarrassed about the whole situation. Alan had another chance at life. What would he do with that second chance? Well, first up, he got divorced. Yeah, just two months later after his rescue, a divorce was granted from his second wife, Cheryl. And really, he was probably separated from her when he had taken that wrong turn into a snowbank. After the divorce, Alan stayed in the area and then married his third wife, Colleen Evans, on February 10th, 1984. They were married for a long time, living in Clear Creek County, Colorado. The years drifted by, but then in 2001, a tragedy struck. Alan's wife, Colleen, was killed in November 2001. She had been in a car crash, but this car crash was reported two different ways. The first way was that her car had spun out on the ice, but the second way was that her brakes went out. Alan was a widower. He stayed in the area for a while after his beloved wife's death, but then in 2008, he decided to move to Dumont, Downeyville area in Clear Creek, which was just a little further northeast of where he had been living. Alan worked as a mechanic and with a vehicle tow service. In September 2011, his father, Robert Phillips Jr., Babo, died in Tucson, and his mama, Willa May, died in 2013 on Alan's 62nd birthday. She was 85 years old and living near her baby, Alan, in Georgetown, Colorado. Time ticked away. Alan lived a peaceful, quiet life in Colorado. He decided to semi-retire from the mining business, but was still fixing snowmobiles. 
he also probably remembered with gratitude those who had helped to rescue him so long ago in the most bizarre circumstances, making national headlines. Alan was a father, a stepfather, a grandfather, but somewhat of a hermit, not leaving home much. He had lived a long life as he approached his 70s and knew he was in his retirement years. And that could have been the end of his story. However, this wasn't the end of the story, because in this story, nothing was as it seemed. You see, dear listeners, Alan had been hiding a secret that cold, snowy night on January 6th, 1982, as he sat freezing to death, hoping against all odds to be rescued. But this secret was done being a secret, thanks to two families who would not give up, investigators who refused to let a case go cold, and a special thanks to science. You see, dear listeners, something else had happened that night, that January night in 1982, the same night Alan was stuck in his death trap of a truck, waiting to die unless someone found him. Two women had disappeared from the Breckenridge, Colorado area, Annette K. Schnee and Barbara Bobby Joe Oberholzer. Let's jump back in time to that night in 1982. This might be difficult for more sensitive listeners, and I'll try to be as tactful as I can be whilst telling the important parts of the story. Before I tell the story, though, there is something I have learned from the Buried Bylines podcast done by a former student of my husband's and a colleague friend of hers. These two women are former news producers and discuss stories that didn't get the limelight they deserved. What I have learned from these two is to tell the story of the victims, but shine a light on who that victim was as a person, not just what happened to them. In that way, you help the person become more than just their tragic end. So, okay, Mallory and Megan, I'm gonna try. Barbara Jo Oberholzer was a 29-year-old woman who worked as a receptionist for a real estate company and went by the name Bobby Joe. She and her husband of four and a half years, Jeffrey Oberholzer, had recently moved to Alma, Colorado from Racine, Wisconsin. If you recall from my earlier speech, Alma, Colorado is just south of Breckenridge, Colorado. It's also getting very difficult to say Colorado for some reason, I'm sorry. According to a New York Times article, Bobby Joe was a meticulous planner and, quote, often carried around a notebook full of plans and budgets for a horse corral that she and her husband planned to build on their property in Elma, end quote. Jeff described his wife as a free spirit. In her pictures, Bobby Joe had beautiful, long, straight blonde hair and a pretty smile. Bobby Joe had called her husband on the evening of January 6, 1982, and told him that she was going out for drinks to celebrate with some friends and would be home soon. She was celebrating a surprise job promotion from office secretary to office manager of the real estate company. In order to really understand this next part, because this is not the lifestyle I live or understand, as it is no longer common at all, but. Back in 1982, and I mean the 70s and the 60s and the 20s and 30s, whatever, people hitchhiked all the time. 
I mean, there's a good reason people don't hitchhike much anymore, which we will soon discover. There is a definite reason why we can't have nice things. Darlene. But back in the Breckenridge area, people relied on hitchhiking because of Breckenridge. It was a popular ski resort area, and it attracted rich tourists, but many residents struggled to keep up with the cost of living and couldn't afford their own cars. People from this area of Colorado would often look for the regular hitchhikers to give them lifts, because people just knew each other in the town. Hitchhiking was how Bobby Joe would get to and from work quite often. That night, Jeff had offered to come get her, but she just assured him she would be fine. She would just catch a ride home. Around 6.50, Bobby Joe left a pub in Breckenridge, and that was the last time her friends would see her alive. Jeff knew something was wrong when she didn't show up that night. He went into town after the bars closed at 2 a.m., and managed to locate one of Bobby Joe's friends. The friend confirmed that Bobby Joe had left around 6.50 p.m. Jeff went to the police, but was turned away. He needed to wait longer to file a missing persons report. The next morning, Jeff received a phone call from a rancher who lived only miles from Jeff's home. The man had discovered Bobby Joe's driver's license and some of her other items in the man's driveway. Jeff immediately left for the ranch to search for his wife. While on the way to the ranch, Jeff saw Bobby Joe's blue backpack near the side of the road. When he pulled over to get it, he also found her wool glove soaked in blood and a bloody tissue in the snow near the backpack. Jeff knew. He just knew. But he didn't want to give up hope. A group of the Oberholzer's friends grabbed their cross-country skis and formed a search party. They searched for Bobby Joe on the snow-covered Hoosier Pass between Breckenridge and Elma, a route Bobby Joe usually took home. The friends made the gruesome discovery. They found Bobby Joe's lifeless body lying on the side of a snowbank on Hoosier Pass about 10 miles from where she was last seen. Her body was frozen with zip ties around her left wrist. She had been shot twice at close range in the chest. However, according to investigators, the bullet was apparently so damaged that ballistic matching would be difficult. But the weirdest item found near the crime scene was a single orange ankle sock. Jeff said it didn't belong to his wife. Jim Hardke had been a Colorado Bureau of Investigation agent at the time of the discovery. He told 48 Hours, quote, the orange sock didn't belong. It didn't fit anything connected to Bobby Joe Oberholzer. It was just one of those mysterious things that you pick up at a crime scene. End quote. Bobby Joe had been found, but another young woman had gone missing from the area earlier that same day. Her name was Annette Schnee. She was 21 or 22 years old and had hoped to become a stewardess. Annette was also beautiful, with shoulder-length brown feathered hair. She had two jobs, cleaning rooms at the Holiday Inn in Frisco, Colorado, which is near Breckenridge, and a night job as a waitress at a bar. Annette also did not have a car and would hitchhike to wherever she needed to go. When Annette didn't show up for work at the bar, a co-worker reported her missing on the night of January 6, 1982. But unlike Bobby Joe, Annette was not found right away. 
On July 3, 1982, six months after she had disappeared, Annette's body was found by a 13-year-old boy fishing at Sacramento Creek, 23 miles outside of Breckenridge, but 10 miles from the other side of Hoosier Pass. She was fully clothed and face down in the water. Annette had been shot in the back at a downward angle. Investigators believed that she may have been on her knees or running downhill away from her shooter. Annette had been sexually assaulted. The zipper on her jeans was broken and her shoes were on the wrong feet when she was found. Two young, beautiful women, doing the best they could with limited resources, were murdered at the beginning of what should have been long lives. The women did not know each other. They were not hitchhiking together, but both had trusted the wrong person on that Wednesday night of January 6, 1982. They were found in a 20-mile radius of each other, around the Fair Play Elma area. They were both shot to death. And something I didn't mention. When Annette was found, she was wearing one orange ankle sock on her left foot. An orange sock. It was the mate to the sock found near Bobby Joe's body. This sock was hard evidence that tied the two cases together. Investigators theorized that the sock had come off of Annette during her assault in the killer's vehicle and either fell out or was thrown out of the vehicle when Bobby Joe tried to escape. Investigators put together a timeline for the murders. Wednesday, January 6, 1982. Annette Schnee had visited her doctor in Breckenridge after her shift at the Holiday Inn was over. She was last seen leaving a pharmacy in Breckenridge at 4 p.m. and was engaged in a serious conversation with a dark-haired woman, who has never been identified. Around 5 p.m., Annette was hitchhiking home. Someone pulled up and offered Annette a ride. The driver drove 20 miles south of Breckenridge and then took Annette down a short, dead-end road near Sacramento Creek. She was assaulted, and then allowed to get dressed. While she was getting dressed, she found one long sock, but couldn't find both of the orange socks her mother had bought her for Christmas. So she put on the one orange ankle sock she could find. In her hurry, she put her boots on the wrong feet. She escaped the vehicle, but while running away, she was shot in the back. Police believe the killer drove back to Breckenridge and found his second victim. Bobby Joe, around 7 p.m. At first, the killer headed south on Highway 9 toward Bobby Joe's home in Elma. But the killer drove 10 miles south of Breckenridge to a scenic overlook at Hoosier Pass and apparently attempted to rape her. This was why there were zip ties around her wrist. But Bobby Joe fought back. She either fought back with her own hands or she used a metal hook that Jeff had made her to help defend herself. The metal hook was found on her keychain near her body. Was she able to scratch her killer's face? She left the vehicle, and when she got out, the other orange sock fell to the ground. She ran down the highway toward her home, but she was chased. She must have turned back toward the killer because then Bobby Joe was shot twice in the chest. Who were the suspects in this case? Well, the lead suspect might surprise you, or maybe it won't. It was Jeffrey Oberholzer, Bobby Joe's husband. Why? 
Well, forgive me, Jeff, but you were just acting strange. See, Jeff Oberholzer owned an appliance repair business, and you're going to love this. His business card was found inside of Annette Schnee's wallet. Let me repeat that for you right quick, because I myself had to reread the sentence a couple of times. The number one suspect in the murders of Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee was Bobby Joe's husband, Jeffrey Oberholzer, because his business card was found in Annette Schnee's wallet, which connected him to Annette and obviously his own wife, Bobby Joe. Still, that wasn't all that made police pause and stare at Jeff a little extra long. He at first denied knowing Annette Schnee. When Annette's picture appeared in the paper, he called the lead investigator and said, Oh, wait a minute. I do remember this lady. A few months ago, she was hitchhiking and I picked her up. I gave her a business card because I was really promoting my business. All of that was a paraphrase. Jeff said he never saw Annette again. He didn't even know her name. But Jeff just couldn't help himself. He told investigators about a premonition he had. Now, keep in mind, Annette was missing for six months. Jeff gave this premonition early in her disappearance. Jeff stated that Annette Schnee would be found seven miles from his home, and she would be found on the 4th of July. Jeff, no. Why? You don't need to share all of those inner thoughts, my dude. But in fact, Annette was discovered four miles from Jeff's home on the 3rd of July. Bonkers. Also, I, I may have gotten that backwards. It may be that he said she would be four miles and she was actually discovered seven miles. Anyway, I guess maybe Jeff, you know, has the gift. Jeff also said he had a rock-solid alibi. Jeff said that at the time the murders were committed, he was at home visiting with a friend. But Jeff couldn't produce the witness for authorities. Nine freaking years later, the friend finally materialized. <laughs> what the? But guess what? The times the friend gave that he was at Jeff's weren't the same times that Jeff said he was with the friend. The times didn't match up. The stories weren't straight. Oh, Jeff, this is all not a good look. It's bad. Bad, bad, bad. Had Jeff killed a stranger he gave a ride to, and then his own wife? Jeff swore he was innocent. Jeff even took a polygraph test and passed. He actually took two polygraph tests and passed both. But the police did move on to a different man named Tom Luther, who had a violent history against women and who was later convicted of sexual assault. However, authorities couldn't link Tom Luther to the two women. There were other suspects, too, but without evidence that could be used in the 1980s, the case went cold. Or at least, it tried to. But every few years, the families of both Annette and Bobby Joe pushed for updates and answers. Detectives would circle back to the case to reconsider the suspects and look at any new leads. The case was even featured in a May 1st, 1991 Unsolved Mysteries episode and on a 48 Hours episode. In 1998, a crime lab tested the glove found by Bobby Joe's backpack. 
the DNA showed that it was a mixture of Bobby Joe's blood and an unknown male. Finally, Bobby Joe's husband, Jeffrey Oberholzer, was cleared. His DNA was not on the glove or the tissue. But science just wasn't ready to reveal anything more. The evidence was secured. The DNA from the blood on the glove and tissue preserved, and the answers to everyone's questions sat and waited a total of 40 years in the hopes that someday these two women would have the justice they deserved. And that justice was about to show itself in the form of genealogical DNA, also known as familial DNA. Let us talk about familial DNA. According to Wisconsin Department of Justice, familial DNA search is a tool that deliberately searches for biological relatives of an unknown evidence profile obtained from crime scene evidence. That was a quote. ScienceDirect.com states that the software uses genetic algorithms to identify patterns in similarity that are likely to occur within close family relationships, like parent-child and siblings. From UnsolvedMysteriesFandom.com, quote, The process involves taking a DNA sample from an unknown suspect and placing it in a public DNA database. End quote. But hold on now. For those of you who have run your DNA through 23andMe or Ancestry.com, your DNA is supposed to be protected. Now, supposedly you have to agree to have your DNA placed in the database. I have not done any of the DNA stuff, although I want to. Hint, hint. Christmas. And heck yes, I am all about investigators using my DNA to bust my relatives. Anyhow. Back to the Unsolved Mysteries fandom webpage. Quote, Genealogists then create a family tree of the suspect based on matches from relatives in the database until they are able to narrow the tree to a specific individual. End quote. But could evidence gathered in 1982, and quite honestly, 100% probably a little contaminated, be able to provide a good DNA sample? After all these years? Remember, in 1998, the technology had caught up enough to be able to figure out that it was indeed Bobby Joe's blood on the glove and the tissue, but the other DNA came back as an unidentified male. Who was that male? Park County Detective Sergeant Wendy Kippel was working with Charlie McCormick, an investigator hired by the Annette Schnee family. Sergeant Kippel, 56, has been investigating the case for more than 30 years. She grew up in Summit County and was a senior in high school when the crimes took place. It's one of those cases that you just can't put down, Sergeant Kippel said. You have to find out why and who. Kippel had access to the locked away evidence and McCormick was working leads. Enter another person interested in the case, Mitch Morrissey. I read about Morrissey in the New York Times article. It stated that, quote, After one of the investigators in the case died, three years ago, his son gave a packet of news articles about the case to Mitch Morrissey, a former prosecutor and a co-founder of United Data Connect, a Colorado-based company that conducts forensic genealogy. Mr. Morrissey told reporters in March 2022 that he was struck by the photos of the women Quote, 
lying in the snow after being shot in the darkness, by themselves, dying, basically freezing to death. End quote. Kipple and McCormick, what a great team name, worked with Morrissey, not the singer, through United Data Connect to see if they could finally get a match with the DNA. It was early in 2020 when the Bobby Joe sample was turned over to United Data Connect. According to the New York Times, quote, a forensic genealogist with United Data Connect was able to extract DNA from some of the case evidence and found 12,000 people in a family tree who had a possible match to the profile, which is the DNA sample. Sergeant Kipple said investigators asked many of those people to volunteer DNA samples, and all of them agreed to provide one. She declined to say how many people had given a sample, or if a certain someone had provided one. The hero genealogist was then able to match the DNA to two brothers. Come on now. You know who the two brothers were, right? 74-ish-year-old Bruce Phillips and his 69-ish-year-old younger brother, Alan Lee Phillips. Well, well, well. It couldn't be the Alan Lee Phillips from our story. No way. Not the son of Babo and Willamai. Not the boy who had been born in Cadillac, Michigan, grew up in Texas, graduated from military school, was married several times and made national headlines when he was rescued from a snowbank after he used the SOS code in a desperate attempt to save his own life and the flashing code from his Datsun truck headlights had been spotted by a police chief a thousand feet in the sky. Not this lucky bastard, our Alan Lee Phillips. Well, he is not our Alan Phillips. He's a f- Bruce Phillips, his brother, was contacted first. As I said earlier, he had moved to Arizona and explained that he had never lived in Colorado. But his estranged brother did. In fact, as far as Bruce knew, his brother still lived in that area. Huh. Upon further investigation into Alan Phillips, it was discovered that he had been convicted of assault and burglary in 1973 and served six months behind bars. Phillips had signed a confession admitting that he had picked up a 22-year-old female hitchhiker in Breckenridge, took her to an empty cabin, and assaulted her, but let her go. Six-month sentence. Huh. Picked up a 22-year-old female hitchhiker in Breckenridge. Wow. Also, do you recall how Alan had gotten divorced in 1973? Same year as this assault? Huh. Oh. And wait. Someone, Dave Montoya, a now-retired firefighter, suddenly remembered that amazing rescue that had taken place the same night as both Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee had gone missing. It was Alan freaking Phillips who had gotten stuck up in Guanella Pass when everyone and their freaking grandpappy knew you could not drive through Guanella Pass in the winter. This placed Alan Phillips near enough to the murders to have committed them. But he had been drinking with friends in Bailey, Colorado, and then drunk driving himself home, remember? That was his claim. It couldn't be true, though, that the murderer of Bobby Joe and Annette had been hiding in plain sight this whole time. 
right? Now, hold on. You think I've already convicted Alan based on the timeline of the murders, which isn't a good look for Alan Phillips, but it isn't hard proof. And maybe you think the DNA isn't hard proof either. But investigators needed proof that the DNA match was legit. While a direct relative, 100% probably Alan's own brother, had submitted DNA to the genealogical database, investigators needed a current DNA sample from Alan Phillips, but they had to be clever when collecting it so as not to arouse suspicion from Alan. Oh, you're going to love this. (laughs) And well, hate Al even more. Detective Sergeant Wendy Kippel was convinced she had the man who murdered Annette Schnee and Bobby Joe Oberholzer. The team began to covertly tail Al Phillips around town in late January 2021. For five weeks they tailed him. He lived like a hermit, Kippel said. The man didn't leave the house and no one came to see him. He didn't even bring trash out to the curb. Uh, what was he doing with his trash? What was going on in that house? The big break came when Alan decided to go out for lunch and stopped into a sonic drive-in, ordered food, left, and then later that day stopped at the post office. Again, an unmarked patrol car followed him covertly. The officers saw Alan enter the post office with the sonic bag. When Alan left without the bag and drove away, the team descended on the post office and confiscated the trash Alan had tossed in a trash can. You should really watch the 48 hours on this whole case. It's pretty good. Wendy Kippel is like so ecstatic. We got it, she clapped. His DNA was pulled from saliva on a napkin in the bag. Finally, on February 23rd, 2021, the day after my birthday, the DNA results came back. The DNA from Bobby Joe's glove and the tissue matched with the DNA pulled from the saliva on Alan's sonic napkin. It was absolutely Alan Phillips' blood on the glove and the bloody tissue. How absolute? Something like one in a quadrillion. Or, yeah, watch that 48 Hours episode because I can't remember the specific statistic. Oh, and the orange ankle socks came back with some DNA as well so that the murders could be linked. Annette's DNA was on the inside of the sock, and Bobby Joe's DNA was on the outside. On February 24, 2021, Alan was pulled over in his neighborhood for a small traffic violation. To his absolute shock, the officer asked Alan to step outside of his vehicle and then promptly arrested him. The charge? Kidnapping, assault, and homicide. And guess who got to arrest him? Detective Sergeant Wendy Kippel. Alan Lee Phillips had been hiding in plain sight this entire time, 40 years. That cold night in 1982, Alan hadn't merely misjudged a snowy road and ended up stuck in a snowbank. He hadn't gotten drunk and made a bad judgment call trying to drive through Guanella Pass. He also hadn't scratched his face on some brush. Alan Lee Phillips had not been in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had put himself there trying to run, trying to hide from the assault, rape, and two murders he had just committed. Sergeant Wendy Kippel had said, quote, It was his own stupidity that got him up there, because the pass is not passable in the wintertime. I don't know what he was thinking other than he was trying to run away from a crime he had just committed. 
end quote. His life was spared that night. He signaled SOS and that lucky SOB was saved. But damn it all. Those poor women who had such horrific, violent endings to their lives got nothing except terror and brutalization. Remember what the firefighter Dave Montoya had said about finding Alan? Quote, I thought, how in the heck did this guy get so lucky for all that stuff to fall into place? Well, Dave Montoya had something else to say about his former co-worker in the 48 Hours episode. Montoya stated, if I knew then what I know now, I would have left him there. And if Montoya had left Alan there, Alan would have frozen to death. Oh, yeah. Want to know something that is just absolutely freaky mind-blowing? The day after Alan's rescue on Thursday, January 7th, 1982, in the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph newspaper, two articles ran side-by-side, right next to each other. On the left was an article with the headline, Woman's Body Found Near Summit of Hoosier, and on the right was the headline, Airliner Gets S.O.S., from Stuck Trucker. What a bizarro twist. Alan Lee Phillips maintained he was innocent and planned to appeal his conviction, claiming the DNA evidence used against him was contaminated and mishandled. Annette Schnee's mother, Eileen Franklin, was 88 years old at the time of the arrest. She literally could not believe she was witnessing her daughter's killer being brought to light. You know, she stated, I thought maybe I'd be gone before I had closure to this case, so that really, I'm ready to go when it's my time now. And what about Jeff Oberholzer, at one time a suspect in the murders? He released a statement as well. Quote, I pray that the arrest of Alan Phillips for the murder of my wife, Bobby Joe and Annette Schnee will finally, after all these decades, bring closure and peace to this hideous nightmare for myself along with all the lives he has horribly affected by his actions. I cannot thank enough all who never gave up the search for the truth. End quote. On September 15, 2022, a Park County jury found Alan Lee Phillips guilty of two counts, each of first-degree murder, felony murder, and kidnapping. Alan sat motionless and emotionless as the conviction was read out loud. Several people made statements including Alan's daughter, Andrea. She said how sorry she was for the families of Annette and Bobby Joe, and that she believed in forgiveness and redemption. She told the judge that Phillips had taught her and her siblings honesty and ethics as they were growing up. Quote, He is a good man, and I thought someone should say something. End quote. Yet, he got to live a life. He got to see his dreams through, if he even had any. Bobby Joe never got to open up her horse corral. Annette never got to become a flight attendant. But this guy, he got to do whatever the hell he wanted to do. Including having Sonic for his last lunch. And really, Sergeant Kipple thinks Alan Phillips could have killed more people that we don't even know about. It's definitely possible, she said. I mean, it's weird that just before both of his divorces were final, he assaulted and raped a 22-year-old in 1973, and then in 1982, just before the other divorce was final, he murdered Bobby Joe and Annette. Was there any speculation about his third wife's death? The one where her brakes gave out? 
I don't know. That definitely could have been an accident. Seven weeks later, after Alan Lee Phillips' conviction, he received his two consecutive life sentences to be served one after the other without the possibility of parole. Annette Schnee and Bobby Joe Oberholzer's murderer was finally brought to justice after 40 years as a, quote, cold case. Park County Sheriff Tom McGrath said, quote, This arrest is the culmination of technology, extraordinary police work, and an unwavering commitment to justice for Bobby Joe, Annette, and their families. End quote. But the story did not even end there. Al Phillips was 71 years old at the time of his conviction. He was sent to Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility and on March 24, 2023, so yes, this year, Alan Phillips was found dead in his jail cell. He had committed suicide. So that is the story of a man that started his life in Cadillac, Michigan. Thank God he moved. Lived a life that was never what it seemed. He sent up an SOS into the heavens and was saved. Although the two women who he had literally just murdered needed that SOS more than that asshole did. Alan was able to hide in plain sight. He was caught. Also, yay, genealogists and science. And now it's time for Oops, I'm Stupid Again, along with a special message. I was all set to tell you about my cat and how I had to get a um, urine sample from her and the different steps you can take to get a urine sample from your cat instead of bringing them into the vet and going through all that traumatization. But instead, I'm going to tell you about my day today because it's full of moments that I literally just cannot even believe. And it's only two o'clock right now. So today is November 17th, and it's the last day of school before my kids are off for a week. Uh, Big things were happening today and have just happened today. And um, the first thing that happened was that I knew I had to get up a little bit early than I do. So like 6.15 so I could get myself ready so that I could help my middle daughter get ready because she was going to be in the variety show. And she wanted her hair done and makeup done. So right, no problems. Um, But it didn't quite work out that way. And I was rushing around and decided, you know what, I'm just going to bring you to school. And then I was supposed to provide coffee for the staff members at my daughter's elementary school, my other daughter's elementary school. And so I had ordered that coffee yesterday just to make sure that it would be done and I could just pull up and get it and leave. All of this was on such a tight time frame that I was thinking, okay, I get middle kid to school by 730 and then go right to the coffee place and get that by 7.35. And then get to or go back home and grab the youngest daughter and get up to the elementary school by 7.45. And um, then I could participate in the staff breakfast as I am a staff member. I work in the parking lot. And then I would work in the parking lot for that half hour, 8 to 8.30 leave the school, go up 
to the junior high, which they are about two minutes apart. And then I could see the first variety show, the morning, the AM variety show. And I had volunteered my services wherever I was needed. But (laughs) I took the middle kid to school and then got into a conversation with the police officer there about the people who use the parking lot. By the time I got up to Big B, I'll just say it was Big B, um, I walked up to the window and they said, we don't have your order. And I said, but I talked to this person. And it was like they almost didn't believe me. And I'm just one of those people that's like, no, you you must, you have to believe me. I, I wouldn't just walk in and, and tell you this without, and so like I'm showing them my phone. See, look, this is the phone call I made yesterday. They're like, okay, no problem. It's going to be 10 minutes. Now, remember, I'm under a tight time frame here. I'm like, I don't have 10 minutes, but okay, what am I going to do except cry? Well, the lady gave me a free thing of donuts because she felt so bad, and I thought that was very sweet. All right, I've got the coffee. It's 8.50. And I had called my friend, Alex, who's amazing, and she had actually left the school, went and got my youngest daughter, brought her back to the school, So everybody is sort of where they're supposed to be, except I needed to make a stop home. But as I'm turning my car onto a main road by me, I thought that the coffee in the back had tipped over. And I looked over my shoulder to see if it had. And why did I do that? I was going probably five miles an hour, okay? I was making a turn. And I thought it was a quick enough look, but it wasn't a good idea. Oh my God. I ended up hitting somebody's trash can, their Granger trash can full of trash. And I had to get out of the car. I could have taken off, right? But I didn't do that. Nope. I got out of the car. I parked in the driveway and now there's trash all over. So I had to pick up somebody else's trash because that's the right thing to do, right? So I'm picking up this person's trash and trying to shove it back into their Granger. Um, I should have, like in hindsight, I want to buy them a bag of trash bags because yes, there were trash bags, but there was just a lot of freestanding trash and their kids or somebody in that house must like those cheeses that are wrapped in the red wax stuff. Um, My daughter, I think they're called Belt. But baby bells, I, maybe, yeah. And so there was like these red wax things I had to pick up out of their yard. And <sighs> anyways, I get to the school. I'm late. I've got the coffee. I had to bring some bagels too. And I grabbed a sandwich, a little breakfast sandwich. And I it was already I was t- ten minutes late to do traffic. And 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 then I got to the school. And I watched the variety show, and it was wonderful. Everything was great. Then I had to go to Kroger, do some grocery shopping. I was supposed to go in for two things and ended up with a cart full of groceries because, hey, you know, while I'm here, let's just buy everything you need for Thanksgiving. Just stupid. I should have just run in. Anyways, I come back home. I edit my episode. I just, the only thing I have left to do, gosh, I hate that you can hear me in this chair. I need a new chair. The only thing that I had left to do was to record, oops, I'm stupid again, about getting a urine sample from a cat. 
but I didn't have time and our internet was down the whole day. Now it was time to go to back to the junior high for the second variety show because my daughter was going to be in both doing the same dance. And I met my husband up there. And in case you don't know about Joe, yes, he's a metal detectorist, but Joe is a, let's see, an elementary school principal. He's been doing that for 10 years. Keep in mind, this is the school that's now a junior high, but he and I both graduated from this school. We know this school. This has been in our lives for, I don't know, 30 years, 35 years. No, probably 30. So anyway, we enter the auditorium and we find my mother-in-law and we sit with her, got some friends behind us. And, um, and the friend's husband is also a principal in a different, different district. But what's funny is we're all alumni of this school district and the variety show starts and everything is going wonderful and well. And towards the end, there's only like a couple songs left. Towards the end, I look over my shoulder. We were in the maybe fourth row from the very back and something is happening. And I thought somebody was getting in trouble at first, like maybe security had approached this person to calm down. And then I kind of realized, no, wait a minute, there's something medical happening right now. Something is not right. And then I thought, oh my gosh, there's a student having a seizure, but I have never really been around somebody who's having a seizure before. Now, I know, I know I talk about her a lot, and I've actually never really met her, (laughs) but Jen Carpenter, uh, she is the podcaster um, for Violent Ends, and she has a son who has seizures, and she has a whole episode about this and about the history of his seizures. And in this episode, she talks about what to do if you see someone having a seizure. Well, then I realized that the person having the seizure was an adult. It was not a student. And I turned to my husband and I said, she's having a seizure. Keep in mind, none of the kids in the audience know because they're all focused on what's happening on the stage. My husband immediately jumped up and immediately went to her because he's been trained in what to do and he has assisted Uh, somebody else who was having a seizure. So then I realized, I just, I don't know why I just, I kept thinking about Jen's episode and I stood up and I went over there. And so I could hear my husband calming her down, talking to her, you know, it's okay. And I kept telling him to you know, tell her it's going to be okay. You know, look her in the eye, smile, comfort her. I remembered that about Jen's episode, being there for somebody, because that could be the only thing that's soothing them. Their brain is scrambled. The messages are scrambled, but there's something about somebody just being there. And then I just stood and I protected her by not allowing people to see her. And some other staff members had come over and sort of created a wall. But again, the kids didn't know. They were all focused on the stage. 
Well, they got her out of her seat. They were she was on the ground. The woman started to sort of come out of the seizure and they got her eventually into a wheelchair and got her out of the room before the variety show was over. And um by the time the ambulance got there, she seemed to be doing better, but that part, I guess, it's it's important, but I think it's more private. And um, I guess I'm just telling you this because my day started so crazy. And um, I could have been either really hurt myself by not paying attention when I was driving or um, hurt somebody else doing that. And then all these things that I felt like were against me as I was watching this poor woman, I, I just, my heart went out to her. And I want you all to be more prepared. I don't know. Sort of like put this on your radar because it can happen anywhere. And just so you know, I was told that this woman doesn't even have a history of having seizures. So this came out of nowhere for her as well. And... Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so that started our Thanksgiving break, and um, I hope she's okay, uh, of course. And I wanted to tell you, though, that I got a phone call from the woman who took my order yesterday at Big B when I ordered the micro cart, and she called me personally on her personal cell phone, apologized, left me a message apologizing profusely, and just, what can I do to make this better? And, um, I haven't called her back yet just because I've been busy, but I thought that was very kind. She admitted like she dropped the ball. She was very sorry. And I, I think that that's really above and beyond for customer service. It wasn't just, oh, yep, I made a mistake, you know, the end, which, you know, I think we have to give each other grace for mistakes and not get super hung up on them, but also taking accountability for the mistakes we make. Yeah, that's got to be there too. And I just really appreciated that. So how is that for an Oops, I'm Stupid Again that I did not write ahead of time and I'm totally, um, I don't want to say free balling it, um, just <laughs> totally just talking, okay? I typically don't do this and this is why. Anyway, my next episode will be episode number 21 and I am going to, I swear, I'm going to get four in before the end of the year, and I don't know how, but it's going to happen. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank my three sponsors, Julie, Crystal, and Chris, for helping support this podcast and helping me to keep going. And Well, not in life, but <laughs> keep the podcast going. I consider them co-producers because of their monthly support. Um, I wanted to tell you who my sources are. I will have them all written out. A lot of them are law, I think it was lawandcrime.com. I know unsolvedmysteriesfandom.com. Uh, the episode, the 48 hours episode, and even the unsolved mysteries episode. And definitely morbid knowledge on Twitter, which was the, you know, the place that I originally saw the story. And of course, Ancestry.com that helped me link all of that information. Please join me again soon for another story on where they stood. <laughs>